I wake up and I go, I hope I can do better today with the amazing gifts that God gave me. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. I also want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Saul K here. Super excited on this episode here in mid-August. We have a special guest from California. And without further ado, let me edify the man properly. Rabbi Mark Blazer is the president of the Jewish Life Foundation. The foundation's mission is to promote Jewish culture. The majority of its educational programming airs on Jewish Life Television, JLTV. JLTV is the only national, international TV network dedicated to uplifting and Jewish values programming. He has served as a spiritual leader of Temple Beth Ami in Santa Clarita, California, since 2000. Mark is the founder of the Albert Einstein Academy, AEA, the first K-12 Hebrew charter school in the Western United States. Within three years of opening, AEA was in the top 1% of high schools in California. It now has schools in California, Ohio, and coming soon to Arizona. Rabbi Blazer also serves as chaplain for the LA County Sheriff's Department and has served as chaplain for the California Department of Corrections. For eight years, he ministered as the only prison rabbi serving statewide across California. Rabbi Blazer studied at Oxford University and is a graduate of the University of California, San Diego. He received his smicha, rabbinical ordination, from the Academy for Jewish Religion in New York. Mark and his wife, Tracy, were married in 1993. They are the proud parents of Rachel, Dina, and Shira. He continues the legacy of his father, Phil, the founder of JLTV. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Rabbi Mark Blazer. All right, let's go. Come on, hold that. Way louder in the back. Oh, that's how we do it. That's how we do it. Yes. Very excited today, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, calm down, calm down in the back. Rabbi Mark, how are you, sir? Excellent. And thank you so much, Saul, for having me be a part of this amazing podcast. I think you're sharing and giving everyone an opportunity to listen and learn from people some really great people. I'm honored that you've included me amongst the guests that you're profiling. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So for people that don't know you, let's talk a little bit about your background and specifically growing up Jewishly in and around Los Angeles. It was an interesting background. We have a lot of great things going on in the Jewish community in LA. I think we always also, by the way, have a, we have a feeling of inadequacy when we compare ourselves to our East Coast friends, especially in the New York area. But Look, as second city, at least when it comes to the Jewish world, in our minds and what that means, it's part of it. I think it's a, it's exciting. And, it, and it, I think it's most exciting, obviously, when it comes to the nexus point where entertainment and, and Judaism comes together. That was my world because my father, Phil Blazer, was like a Jewish media entrepreneur and someone that really, it, it's hard to compare or to say other people have done this model because there really was no model for what he did. He started out as a DJ, as a actually a secular jazz DJ, moved into Jewish radio, then moved into Jewish newspaper, and then started a Jewish television channel or station first, a actually a program, which became a network, which became JLTV, which is now in every state and outside of, of the United States and is streaming all over the place. You can watch it literally almost anywhere, including, believe it or not, in China, it's outside the firewall or beyond the firewall, you can watch it. And so it's an interesting thing because I grew up with media surrounded by specifically Jewish media and also with a community where we had a lot of great things. And 
I feel fortunate to be able to have been in this community and then later on to be exposed to some other communities. But I love LA and I really do. And it's not just because I was born here and then chose to come back. There's a lot of great stuff that happens here. And and we love love traveling outside of it. I don't think it all happens here. I'm trying to always push myself to see what's going on in the Jewish world outside of LA, but it's pretty cool stuff here. I love LA. So I almost started singing. I was at the Dodger game Sunday and we got to sing that. We got a win. So yeah, I think about that. And Randy Newman, by the way, who's written so much good music intersection of Jews and, and entertainment. But yeah, I love LA. And so did you go to Jewish uh, day school growing up? Or was that? Yeah. Okay. Tell me. Yeah. Tell me. So it was interesting because I was actually, again, and I think about it now only from the space of looking back in time now, 45 years, my family actually helped start the first community Jewish day school in LA, Heschel Day School, which is not associated with the New York school that started later, but the Heschel Day School started as a community day school. My family was involved in the first year of that school, and, and my father actually was the, the third president of, of the school and was very involved with the school's eventually decision to locate into Northridge, which is actually where I grew up in the north side of the San Fernando Valley. But yeah, we had day school, which I actually saw grow, and thankfully now in in, in 50 years later, is a real center of Jewish life, especially in San Fernando Valley in Southern California, but was really a kind of a model for what other communities could do in starting a day school that was free of one institution and, and it essentially becomes its own institution. So that was really cool to be a part of that, to see that, to witness it, to be a student of it. It was a great environment. And then I was thrust into, into a public school, high school afterwards, which was very different for me, a little bit of a shock. But it instilled within me this idea that there should be like a balance in life. And also, what are the benefits of both a secular parochial school and public school, which is one of the reasons why, as you mentioned in my bio, one of my most cherished involvements and accomplishments in my life has been the establishment of, of Hebrew language charter schools, which to me are a fusion of parochial school, a Jewish private school model with a hybrid and with serving the general community in a, in a public school in a free environment. So yeah, I, I got the best of both worlds, I think, and uh, got to experience the, the positives and negatives of, of both systems. It was also cool to be a pioneer and to be part of something new, which has always also encouraged me to not be afraid. And, and I inherited that from my folks, from my parents, was that it's tough being on the, it's tough being on the front end and to be out there, but you also get a sense of accomplishment and a sense of being a halutz, being a pioneer, which no one can ever take that away from you. And there's a sense of feeling like, yeah, it, it could have gone either way. It could have not, could not succeed and could have been over. And so there is something really cool about that from my childhood. And, and it inspired me, I think, to do some of the stuff that I've done, not to be afraid. I love it. I love it. Chalitzim in LA. So explain the difference between the day school and then the Hebrew charter school. How would you differentiate that? And what was the, the added value of the difference? Charter schools actually started in, the, it's actually about 30 years that they started. They started primarily, actually the first charter schools were in Minnesota and then in California. So California was actually a leader in charter schools. And really the idea was, and to some extent, some people said it was a compromise between parents who wanted vouchers and and to give them something that they gave some parental control back through through a system of kind of creating parent-led schools that were free of the districts and free of some of the bureaucracies and the and some of the problems of larger schools. So that was the concept of charter schools to begin with. And again, so to some extent, they were created for that necessity of giving parents some uh, rights so that they didn't keep pushing for voucher for a voucher system. Can you pause for one second? What do you mean when you say voucher system? So in the 90s, parents were really advocating and it's still, it's, it hasn't really gone away. This idea that parents of, of school-age students would get vouchers, essentially their money back, and then apply that to whatever school they wanted. So if they wanted to send their kids to a private school, Jewish, Christian, non-secular private school, they could take that money that they were essentially had paid into the system through taxes. They would take that money and then they would be able to apply it to whatever private school that they wanted to. So it was essentially create a school choice. And probably again, for day schools at the time, and even today, it would only cover a fraction of the tuition, but at least it would be something. And it, it probably could bring it down the cost overall because students that are on that are on financial aid at a day school, essentially all those students would be getting that eight or nine thousand dollar block of, of voucher money. 
some states have enacted vouchers in the since, and not many. I think there's two or three states that have vouchers now. Uh, but the charter school concept was essentially, well, we'll let parents have control of this. They can set up their own schools and they have to follow and are accountable to the state or to whatever local authority that, that they've been granted their charter. But essentially, they run their own school. It has to be open enrollment, which is a major difference between private schools and charter schools, is that charter schools have to be open for people of any background. They have to be just an open lottery, an open system of admission. You can preference siblings and staff, the families of staff members, but Essentially, it's an open it's an open enrollment, and you can't teach religion. So none of the funds can be used to teach religion. You can teach language and you can teach culture, but you can't teach religion. So now we have about 15 charter schools that teach Hebrew language across the United States. Most of them are on the East Coast, and and they got funding from some initial there was initial funding from some Jewish philanthropists. But the Jewish community has always been uncomfortable with what these charter schools would look like, and whether they would hurt private Jewish day schools. But again, they can't teach religion. They're also free, though. And so that's the trade-off is you can't do everything you do at a, at a Jewish day school, but at a Hebrew language charter school, you can teach language, you can teach culture, and it's free. And also for ch- children in, in geographically challenged areas, I would say, then there, there's no day school in their midst, which was the case that I had in Santa Clarita. In our part of LA County, we were 25, 30 minutes from the nearest day school that this allowed students to at least have some exposure to Hebrew language on a daily basis and allowed a community that would never have a day school to have something a little bit like a day school. So it's a hybrid. We understood the challenges, the limitations, the the whole structure, but it turns out it's been my experience. And this is what we're doing in Arizona. We're opening up a school in August of 24 in Arizona. We've already been given our charter uh, and we're just like finally coming up with a location. It will be in Scottsdale. I can tell you that. We're going to open a Hebrew language charter uh, K-12 school that was approved in in Arizona for that community, and it'll be it's an open enrollment. So we'll see what happens, and we're very excited about uh, getting that charter. We just got it this year. Uh, again, a charter is essentially the agreement, the contract you have, in this case, with the state of, of Arizona to operate this school, and we've already hired a principal. We're in the process of setting the location and everything else, and then Again, we'll see what happens, but every one of these schools are different. And we ended up starting schools in Ohio that didn't teach Hebrew because we were not in an area where the parents wanted it. And the schools became something different. If, if you look at the AEA Ohio schools, they're very different. And, and I think they're providing things that, that we're not, we didn't even intend in the first place, but there's three campuses and they're one of the schools is a pride school and it's become a school where LGBTQ students have a home and have a place to be where they wouldn't have that necessarily in, in their public school. So we didn't even envision that. And that's what that school ended up becoming in, in the Westlake, Ohio area, those campuses there in Olmstead, that's what happened. So again, sometimes they end up growing or, or becoming things that you never even envision. It's like being a parent. You're going to have a child, the genetic information you're passing on maybe, but you don't know how it's going to turn out necessarily. You can do your best and you can guide it, but you never know. That's what's happened. That's what's happened with it, with uh, our charter schools. And we're hoping it continues to grow. And there's going to be things that we, we can't even imagine that are going to happen that we don't know. I love it. So it seems like every school in the AEA Albert Einstein Academy cluster of schools, they're all independent. They all function yep. autonomously from each other. Okay. So someone's listening to this podcast. They're in Scottsdale, Arizona. They're interested in this school. What's the gap you're filling there? How might somebody participate and or contribute to the school in a way that can mold it to that community's needs? Most important thing is go on our website, Arizona. So it's AEAZ.org. And you can find out information about the school. There's an interest list there. We don't have the site on there too. We're hoping that will be on there very soon once we sign the contract and lock that up. But there's information about our schools and in general and about what this specific school is going to be. I think in Arizona, because there's a pretty large Israeli community, especially attached to some of the high tech that's uh, moved to the Phoenix area lately, that I think there's going to be a decent amount of Israeli families there based on the times I've been out there. I was out there last week. Since the last six months that I've been out there seven or eight times, a lot of Israeli families and a lot of people that are specifically interested in making sure their kids have that connection with Hebrew language, which they'll learn every day from kindergarten through 12th grade. They'll have the ability to learn Hebrew. And at least in in California, the Hebrew language schools, we introduced the NETA program for high school, which is the same Hebrew curriculum that the larger, more successful, I want to say every, every Jewish private 
high school teaches out of, but the NETA program is like one of the best and definitely one of the most admired systems for Hebrew language. And we used it. And again, as long as it doesn't teach religion, we don't have an issue. So again, it's not for everybody. It's not going to, we make no pretense that, that a charter school can teach anything besides language and culture because it can't. It violates the first amendment if we uh, teach religion, but for people who understand that, who are accepting of that and who understand that's, you know, a limitation, it's a wonderful opportunity. And at least for a lot of people, especially like in a state like Arizona, there is no independent community high school yet. They tried, they, they had one 12, 13 years ago, but they haven't had a community high school, a Jewish high school for 13 years. And they tried again last year to get one off the ground and it didn't work. This is at least an alternative. It's not for everybody. And again, it's not an answer for everything, but it is an answer. Got it. Okay. Thanks so much for that. That was really enlightening. So tell me now you went to Jewish primary school. I call it primary yep. school, public high school, then UC San Diego. And at what point did you decide I want to become a rabbi? What happened? That's a question. I know you asked that question to rabbis. It's a, it's an interesting question. It's always an interesting question because I think people are, everyone wants to know, is there a moment when you were called by God and you were told this is what you're going to do? I, yeah, I was just reading the prophet Jeremiah and Jeremiah essentially is told that he was, God called him it in the womb. I had a weird situation, which is where as I was a kid growing up from the time I was probably four or five, Everybody said, one day you're going to be a rabbi. And I thought it was, I, like, I didn't even pay attention to it. I couldn't, it's not even like something that I, I didn't laugh at it. I didn't say that's silly. I just didn't think to some extent, I don't know. I don't know if I thought I couldn't do it. I think maybe part of me said, I can't live that kind of life. I, I, I'm not a holy person. I'm not, I don't, I guess I didn't even know what it meant. I was a kid. So I didn't really think like, what is it, what does it really mean for an adult to have that as a job? But everyone always said, that's what you're going to do. And I didn't realize the reason was, is that I was uh, always interested in some people would say obsessed with all things Jewish. And because my dad was involved with Jewish media and, and had all these people that were in his circle, and again, Rabbi Karlbach, blessed memory, all these teachers, uh, every rabbi in Los Angeles knew my dad. And on high holidays, we would go to five different services uh, for high holidays of, of a full spectrum. I never really processed what would that life be like. I had this amazing Jewish education and exposure that I, I never even thought, you're being trained for this. This is, this is your... I don't know. It's like almost being like raised by a samurai and people go, you're a samurai. Don't you know that? And I didn't like, I never thought about it, but I've been training the whole time. That was your training. I felt that's just what everybody thinks you're going to do. So you don't want to do that because you're just doing what everyone thinks you're going to do. It's almost like by default, that's what you should do. And I remember my dad turning to me at, at college graduation when I graduated from UCSD, I had a degree in history and a degree in literature, double major. In a minor in 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 poli sci, and I had gone to Oxford Center for Hebrew Studies and and studied at Oxford for a year Jewish subjects only well almost only Jewish subjects, and I studied Yiddish for a year at Oxford. So was, even at Oxford, that's what I was studying, and I studied UCSD with Richard Friedman, who wrote the Bible, and he was like a mentor. He was a teacher, but I didn't think at college even that's what I was going to do because I thought I would work with my dad. I thought I would work with Jewish media, and I thought I would like that's what my calling would be because that's what I really wanted to do. And this idea of, of being a teacher or being a, being engaged in a, in a synagogue was like, couldn't really wrap my head around that. At graduation, I remember I probably took twice as many classes to graduate with a degree in Judaic studies, but I didn't do it because I also felt to some extent that that would be like too easy. That was like an easy way of graduating. And then when they called the Judaic studies uh, majors and they called no names, and my dad looked at me and was like, why didn't you do that? And I, it had nothing to do with embarrassment of being a Judaic studies major. And no one got called. And at that moment, I was like, yeah, you messed up. You could have done that and at least stood for the fact that they, there was an amazing Judaic studies department. And it really was amazing. Funded, amazing professors. And I took most, I took every class probably that they had. And I didn't major in it. And, and I was like, that, that was your own ego or whatever saying that's a diminished degree. I fell into that to some extent. So I didn't do that. And then 
I was working with my dad, which was my dream all along, but I also had this one foot in, in still in study. And I didn't like, I felt that there was still stuff for me to do. And so I was studying with Richard Friedman. I was studying, I was in the PhD program at UCSD for about a year and something stuck out in my mind in his book, who wrote the Bible, which is the definitive, easy to read book on the documentary hypothesis and how to read the Bible. And at the end of the book, he says at the end, in the end, it's not who wrote the Bible, but who reads it. I thought to myself, I said, wow, I said, that's pretty profound. And I thought about carrying on and teaching and doing a degree, taking what this would be like to the next level, getting my PhD in biblical studies. And it would have been seven years. And I thought to myself, at the end of the day, I don't want to give tests on the Bible. I don't, my goal is not to have, and I actually TA'd a few times for Richard Friedman and David Noel Friedman, who was a distinguished professor at the time, David Noel Friedman, of blessed memory, was was an amazing biblical scholar, the editor of the Anchor Bible series. And they had me TA and I taught classes and I experienced what it was like to teach a little bit where people came up to me at the end of class and said, is this going to be on the exam? And I thought to myself, I don't want to teach Bible to people. They were definitely interested and they were really reading it. The, The Bible isn't read so that people know that the answer to the test, it's the test of life, right? It's the test of every day. And so I thought to myself, I don't want to do that. I don't want to teach Bible to people that are learning it so they can get a good grade. I want to read it. I want to teach it. I want to study with people who are trying to have a good life. And so that's why I I moved over to the rabbinic side. And I I started asking myself, like, maybe I really could do this. And then one day I was walking in San Diego and I just had that epiphany. And just if you want to say that, those words are like, it's time. So I did. I I talked to my rabbis, the ones that I had studied with as a kid and started the process of actually doing this. And the people were all saying, this is what you were supposed to do. And it was only two years out of college. I'd only graduated two years ago, but I almost felt I delayed it. I delayed what this line should have been. And even still, I was one of the youngest people in my rabbinic class, but it was the right time. And and that's when I decided, yeah, the irony is that Richard Friedman started as a rabbinic student at JTS and ended up becoming a professor. Mm-hmm. I started and then I started in the academia and then moved to, and I don't know that he was ever really hundred percent happy with that, but, but I really did feel like I could do more with my knowledge and love of the Tanakh in that setting, as opposed to the other setting. And I just taught a class today, and I do every Tuesday on the Tanakh. It's Nach now, so I'm in the prophets. And I just did a class on Jeremiah this morning, and, and I thought to myself, I'm still using the, the stuff that I learned from him and with him, but I, I'm teaching adults, and I, I get to teach kids. The next day, I'll get to teach B'nai Mitzvah. And so I really love being able to work in, in the world of Torah with kids of all ages. And then, again, as we're starting to expand into JLTV, now taking a greater role in JLTV, I am able to now to study and or to give some exposure. I don't have the one-on-one interaction with people that I get teaching in a classroom or even over Zoom. But with JLTV, now we have the, the opportunity to spread this light with people all, all around the world, which is really exciting. I love it. So it's the classic hero the monomyth legend, right? Joseph Campbell, every hero, every great leader says no, right? First, and every it's always delayed and then eventually it's you're called. And so I think it's a great story in that, look, if Richard Friedman hadn't come into academia to inspire you to go into your rabbinic tract, who knows? So it's all what I call Hashkacha Prati, which is divine providence. I did have a question for you that was very interesting in your bio. You at one point were one of the only prison chaplains and I wanted to ask you what drew you to that work, and maybe you can tell a couple stories of that, because I'm sure you have a lot of amazing experiences from working in the prisons. Yeah, and it's interesting because they say like every rabbi has at least one book in them. I always think that if I ever write, like one of the books I, I need to write or one of the stories I need to tell some way are the stories of what happened when I was working in, in the California prisons. I worked there, uh, so I started working in the jails in uh, the LA area because our area of Santa Clarita is uh, home to actually several of the jails in Castaic area that are the jails for LA County that are run by the county. Because I lived in that community, they asked me if I would visit those. uh, And so I had to qualify as a chaplain, which I did. I went through the chaplain qualification through the LA County. And so I started visiting the jails here, and then I was working with with Beit Teshuva and visiting some of the people that were trying to get into their program or had been in their program. So I was doing some visits for them. Like a recovery program yeah. in LA for Jewish people? Is that Yeah, 
with people who are struggling with addiction issues and and it really runs Jewish rehabilitation halfway house. They would tell me who what inmates were on their list and I would go visit them and bring them Bibles and talk with them and celebrate holidays with them. And so I was doing that. And then the board of rabbis asked me if I would start visiting the the California prisons, the, the actual long-term prisons that are also not real close to me, but not too far. It's an hour and a half north, but it's an hour closer than a lot of the rabbis on the west side or in the valley, San Fernando Valley. I, I started driving up there. I got certified by the state. And then I started uh, driving up there in the early 2000s. I started driving miles and miles to the to the prisons. And I, I started out going to one primarily. It's called North Kern State Prison in Delano which is literally in the middle of nowhere in the middle of not nowhere for the people who live there. It's 30 minutes North of Bakersfield. And then I started going to some of the other prisons there in the area. There's a prison called Wasco and there's prisons all over that. It's called prison Valley. And so there's Avenal and, and um, Pleasant Valley, which isn't so pleasant, but all these prisons are in this area and they're all maintained by, by the California department of corrections. And so I started visiting some of these other prisons and I ended up going to not all of them, but but quite a few. And there's hundreds of thousands of inmates in California prisons. And while I was doing it, the prisons were really overcrowded. They're still overcrowded, but it was really bad then. And and so I would visit with Jewish inmates, anybody who sent it a request. And I would then go to prisons. If there was nobody going there, they would give me permission to go. And I would visit these prisons where there was no rabbi. So I was attached to one in particular, but then I could go to the others. I had amazing experiences. And to me, it's like the front line of spirituality, because when you're in prison and everything's been taken away from you, or almost everything's taken away from you, what are you left with? When you see what kind of power the spirit has, it's in those, it's in those situations. Look, some people it's almost hopeless, but they're still holding on. And there's still something, there's still something that is driving them. And in some of those places, people really go through transformations. And again, I can't speak about rehabilitation. I can't speak about penalties. I can't speak about any of that, but I can tell you that there are people in the moment or in that moment who definitely have gone through spiritual transformations. And and the easy stuff was the stuff where somebody is, there's like a straight crime that was committed. They're in prison for a certain amount of time. A lot of it was related to addiction and hopefully they'll be okay when they come out. But the interesting stuff that was like a little harder to to deal with, and it was actually a lot of it was people who were not raised Jewish, but who had picked up Jewish practices and meaningful Jewish practices. I'm talking about people that benched, that said the Birkat HaMazon after every meal in prison. I'm talking about people who said the Shema Ve'ahavta, who were from hardcore Mexican gangs that had at some point picked up the tradition of saying the Shaman Ve'ahavta every morning in Hebrew. And I'm telling you, I saw it with my, I mean, like there was no reason for someone to invent that. They were doing it every day. And there, there were people I would talk with Midrash with people who were there for serious crimes and they had no exposure as children. Either they weren't raised Jewish or they had no exposure to these things, but because they were in prison, they had time to read and they had time to really think about these things. I saw some amazing stuff and I saw some really sad stuff. To some extent, that's where you see religion and and spirituality at its highest level when you're literally like it's life or death. And that's what that's one of the reasons why I took took away from that experience, like a real appreciation for when we're leading tefillah in our synagogues, it's meaningful for people and we're trying to uplift people, but there's a place where people are saying these tefillot and they're keeping, it's keeping them alive. I know that sounds like I'm overdoing it, but I'm not. I'm telling you that there's people where that spiritual energy that they're creating with their tefillah, with their prayers are real and keeping them alive. So it was pretty wild. And what finally actually what I, I was in it run its course for me in the sense that I was starting to get involved in the in starting the charter school. So I was having to spend a lot more time on that. But but it was an interesting thing. And this is the one thing I'll tell you, the one story I can share is that my final thing that kind of I actually had to resign because I went and I visited, I had a cousin who was he didn't go into Beit Shuva. Our family was hoping he'd go into Beit Shuva. He was struggling with addiction for many years. He was in jail and ended up going to prison. And I visited him in prison. And what I didn't know was I needed to let the I needed to let the Department of Corrections know that I had a relative in prison, and I needed special permission to visit him. And I went to see him, and I didn't give him anything bad. I gave him socks and I gave him a Bible, the same things that I would give anybody else on that day. 
not because I didn't tell anybody that he was my cousin and they found out because when I came and visited him, the first thing he said is, Hey, cuz. And I, I, they started an investigation on me and they ended up not finding anything, but they knew that I had violated the policy of not telling them. And they said, look, you can fight this or you can resign. And I said, you know what? It, the, the time's for me to resign. So I actually resigned under duress. And look, again, maybe the time was coming up anyways. I, I stopped. Most people listening to this, they, they don't understand the context. So basically the, what you violated was you, you brought a family member or something in prison, essentially. Is that what was violated or you had? Yeah, to- I didn't tell anybody that he was my cousin. And so they assumed that I had brought contraband and they assume wow. I brought in something illegal or something I wasn't supposed to. And they, they pressed him. They, they interrogated him. They really sweated him to see if I had, and I hadn't, they didn't believe it. I don't think they ever believed it. He eventually got out, by the way, that was 16 years ago and he has rebuilt a life. He has two children. He's married and been happily married for 15 years. He ended up getting a degree from UCLA and he's had a, he's had a wonderful life since, but that was his lowest point. And yeah, I also saw that this is no family is disconnected from this. And, but yeah, I got in trouble and, and I didn't know, I can't say I didn't break the rule. I didn't realize I never thought in a million years that I'd have a relative in prison. And I was supposed to let them know the minute he got put into the prison system, I was supposed to let them know, not even if I visited him, I was supposed to let them know. And that I violated. There's no question. I I have no answer to that. I I can say I didn't know. So I, I can't say that I didn't break the law. I did. And I could have thought it, maybe I could have hired an attorney and said, this is what happened and uh, whatever, but I didn't. And again, to some extent, it was also run its course. I have to tell you too, in the back of my mind, and again, now I'm 55, I can tell you, I've always lived my life. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live in fear, but needless to say, it's not overblown. There are a lot of Aryans in, 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 California prisons. They almost have to be members of the Aryan Brotherhood in order to be a white inmate in prison. You have to be a member of something. And, and that's what the white inmates are a part of. At some point, I, it could have been bad. Yeah, I could have, I, I could have, it could have not gone well with me physically. My colleague, who was the Catholic chaplain, who was a wonderful, wonderful man, John of blessed memory, he was the Catholic chaplain. He went into one of these cell blocks, which I would do too. And he got sprayed by one of the inmates and he was Catholic. If they did, if they got him. Sprayed? Got shot? No, he got sprayed, which is they took a a bag full of feces and urine and sprayed him with it. They pressed it onto the bag and spray him with it along. There's a, by the cell, they, they basically splash it on you. And he had to get, he had to get hosed down with chemicals. He had to have injections to stop him from getting hepatitis and HIV. And, and it's just, he had to be on watch. He had to be basically at home for a month afterwards to make sure he wasn't going to develop any contagious diseases. He was the nicest, sweetest guy and he's since passed, not from that. I thought to myself, that's what they did to the Catholic chaplain. I said, what are they going to do to the Jewish chaplain? And I, I was worried not just for my own physical safety, but I was worried for the inmates that I visited because I used to wear a yarmulke all the time when I was visiting inmates. And the, the inmates would say, don't, don't come out here with that because they'll know I'm Jewish. And I didn't even think about it. They had requested me to come, but they wanted me not to be so obvious that, that, that they were Jewish. That's a real, that was a real thing. And at some point you're pushing it. At some point, the odds are, it's just, it's just not good odds, especially if everybody eight, knows you're a rabbi. You had eight years though of yeah. mind protection on your mission. Wow. That's amazing. And I wonder if from, is anyone else, obviously your cousin, but been released from prison and gotten in touch with you to say, yeah. thank you. we've had, I've had a few people that I've kept in touch with. It's interesting. I love hearing from the inmates when they've turned their life around. Unfortunately, I've had a few people who died prematurely, very early because of addiction and because of the lifestyle that they were in. It just caught up with them. That's been very sad to officiate at some funerals for people my age and even younger. But there are a few people. And what's interesting, though, is people are very uncomfortable and they find out. We've had a few events where some of these guys have come and said hi if it's if it's an event in the public it's a a holiday event or something that we're doing in public and 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 I'm very careful now not to tell people where I know the person from because even if the person shares it then that's fine there's nothing I can do about it but if they don't share it and I say it to people a lot of times people get really uncomfortable they they get like why is this per- are they stalking you are they are they a danger to your family and so people 
a lot of times people assume the worst and I think I've never had anything like that, but there are people who are like, they get defensive for me or they're maybe they're even worried for themselves that they're in close proximity to, to that. I'm careful about it now. I don't, I don't introduce people as saying, Hey, this is an inmate that I used to visit with because I don't want people to formulate an opinion about the person. And some people have preconceived notions about what life is like for people who are, who at one point are on the inside. I'll tell you this. One of the things that taught me is every person is a couple of bad decisions away from being in prison. It's not one thing. It's oftentimes it was like a series of bad choices, but there are a lot of people like I'm never, I've never been so confident after that experience of saying that couldn't be me or that couldn't be that person or this friend or, or whatever, because it's never really very rarely a couple of times. It was like one heat of the moment decision. I can think of, I can count on one hand, the amount of people that I interacted with. That was one, a lot of these people, it was, it was an addiction. It was this that led to that, that led to that bad choice. And that's how they wound up. But don't ever think that it couldn't be you. It's just, it's obvious that almost every person that you'll ever meet is a few bad decisions away from being on the other side of the gate. Mm, wow. It really makes you value your freedom in a completely different way, having that reality in your face for so long. Yeah. And it also reminds you that again, it's a series of bad decisions. Like it's like you start down a road and it's one thing leads to another. It's very rarely like one thing. And so you also have to think, Hey, do I have a chance? Because if that's the case, right, if it's a series of decisions, that means almost every time that like that really bad decision was made or every day that a bad decision was made, there was a chance not to make that decision, which in a hopeful way means that there's a lot of ways to get off. The way to get off of that that line, that chain, that direction, that branch, you can go off in other ways. It's not, It doesn't have to be that way because very rarely is it one decision, one bad moment, and it just wound everything. A lot of times it's been going that way. And that means you can break off. You, you don't have to follow that path anymore. Okay. So I want to transition to a, an impactful relationship in your life, which was that of yourself and your father with Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and how that impacted you. Yeah. As I mentioned, going, experiencing these kinds of, of these aspects of Jewish life, which as a kid, you, you sometimes take for granted, or you just, you know, like in some ways, I just assume that everybody did these kind of things. So when I was a kid, when I was uh, celebrating Bar Mitzvah, I was at the Kotel with my dad and my grandfather and Rabbi Kalabach. And he, so he was there with us as the, as the rabbi, the teacher that was with me at that moment at the Kotel. And I'd met him before in LA and had experience with, with his teaching and with his singing. And uh, he was a close friend of my dad's. And then when I was a bar mitzvah, to be able to be there and to hear that, and what really stuck with me was his telling me, and I have the recording of it, where he says to me, you can be a million miles away from the Kotel, from the Western Wall, but you're always here. You'll always be here. And I thought that like all throughout my life that I can always be there. In my mind, I can always be, I can always be at that place. And so for me, I think about it and I think about, and I just got back from bringing four young people to celebrate their B'nai Mitzvah at the same place at the Kotel. And I, I thought to myself, transporting people to that place so that they can have a moment where they can also know that they're always will be here too, is something that I never forgot. And so being around people like that, being around teachers like that, and again, that was what, what my dad had taught me, but for Kalabach to say it in a way that was so much in his style and, and in a way that you can quote it, that's the difference. And that's why it always sticks with me that Having that experience, having that moment has stayed with me. And again, it's strange because even to this day, like I think about the things that that bind me to uh, the work that I do, especially with JLTV and the stuff that I do, do with my dad. And I think about those experiences. I think about those moments. And there were a lot of them growing up. That one was one of the highlights. But all throughout my life, to be able to spend time with these people and to have these kind of Jewish experiences. And again, sometimes it was weird. Like that memory sticks out of my mind. But I also remember as I was probably 16 or 17, and my dad was always also interested in like Jews who were like telling people, oh, this guy was Jewish. This guy who's one of those guys that was, all, oh, yeah, they're, they're Jewish. Mm -hmm. And for his TV show, he did an interview with Lyle Alzado who at the time was like one of the craziest football players, defensive lineman. 
and he was on the Raiders. He'd been on other teams, but he'd come to the Raiders, and he's now on a, a defensive line with Howie Long and Lyle Alzado, and and these guys were just huge. And I remember we went to the Raiders training camp when it was in El Segundo in L.A., and I went there and I saw Lyle Alzado, and my dad was talking to him about being Jewish. I remember seeing this guy who was so freakishly big, and I thought to myself, I said, my dad could find these Jewish connections for people, and he wanted people to like no, hey, yeah, there's a Jew that plays football that's really scary, or there, there's somebody else who's who's doing really exciting stuff in movies who also is informed by their Judaism. That was something that I was raised with. So it was the leaders and the people who are doing the really important work of Keruv, of bringing people into to our community, Karlobach, but also for these other people who would just, oh, wow, you can be Jewish and you can also do this. And so to me, that was something I, and I still do it. I still do it with kids. And I'll say, look, you can be Paul Rudd and you can also, you can also, he can also read Torah. You can do these things. And whoever the star is, whoever the celebrity is, whoever the musician is, that people can be inspired by that. I go, oh yeah, the rabbi said he's Jewish too. And and hopefully there are people that inspire people to make good decisions and uh, to pursue their dreams and to pursue their talents. But it's a weird thing that like, we always have this we want to make sure that we're Jewish, but we're also like accepted by others. And sometimes, look, we sometimes we're perpetrators of, of that too. But for most of us who live in different worlds, we have to remind people it's okay. You can go back and forth between these worlds and you can be successful and, and be happy in these worlds. And they're all part of your, they're all part of who you are. So I, I like that. I like both. I like to teach like from the people who are living that world all the time. And then also that people who are not in that world can also, can also do that. I love it. Okay. There's definitely a lot there to unpack. And I think there's six podcast episodes in that one reply. So we'll have to circle back to some of those responses, but definitely taking pride in when you see what I call MOTs, members of the tribe out there, be it Adam Levine or whoever, Sammy Davis, whoever is out there in the crossing over into the entertainment world, we can always be proud. So let's take it from the top, I know that you've mentioned JLTV multiple times, but I want you to talk about your father, the origins of the show, the story, and how it's evolved. Yeah. So, as I mentioned before, so he started out in Jewish radio, and he really pushed that. Hang on, pause. What yeah. are you talking about? There was a Jewish radio station, or he had well, a not show? a Jewish radio station. So here's how it really the origin. It's actually a cool origin story too for him was that he was uh, he loved music. He loved jazz. He loved R&B music. And he always wanted to be on the radio. And one of his first jobs when he was just uh, in high school, he was already working as a DJ locally in LA. And then he moved to Minnesota to go to University of Minnesota. And he started working for a DJ out of Minnesota who ended up becoming very well known, Wolfman Jack. And so he worked for Wolfman Jack on the station in Minnesota. And he asked the Wolfman, he said, can we do a Jewish radio show on Sunday mornings on the station when they had to do public access, they had to do community radio anyways. And so Wolfman let him do it. And he worked on this. My dad worked at the station, but then he got this little block on Sunday morning to do Jewish music. And there, there's, there, there is a weird story, which I won't share today, but I will say it's one of the, if it's a real story, it's Come one on. of the crazy. You can't say that and not tell the story. Tell the story. Okay. So, all right. So this is, I'll tell the very brief thing. So my dad was, was on the radio with the Jewish music, playing the Jewish music. And so the Wolfman gave him this time and it was, it was not a Jewish station. It was playing essentially R&B music, which was already like still in the sixties, early sixties. This is still, especially in Minnesota in the Midwest, it's still, a little, it's still a little different, but it's Minnesota. And, and that's where he, he had family connections. His aunts and uncles lived there and he was there for university anyway. So he's there on Sunday mornings playing music and about six months into his his show, they get a letter from a, a woman who says she's a big fan of the music. She's not Jewish. She's African-American. She's actually, she's actually Jehovah's Witness, but and they don't listen to the radio a lot, but they like the Jewish music and they like the prayers and the, they like the Jewish, it was Yiddish and it was music from Israel that was coming out of Israel and Jewish folk music. And he, and she really likes the music. And she says she wants to come by the station and she wants to uh, meet the DJ and she wants to thank him for uh, the music. Now, this is the story that I have. Uh, and she shows up at the station one morning, uh, one Sunday morning to meet, to meet my dad. And she brings with her little son, who's about, I want to say about six or seven at the time. I'm just telling you who that son was. 
this Minnesota, it's about 1965. It's about five or six years old. This is what I was told. That young man, Prince, Prince Rogers Nelson. Again, supposedly, and the only thing, again, I can corroborate it was he was raised uh, very religious and, and not really allowed to listen to that kind of music. But yeah, that's what supposedly Prince was raised on Jewish music on my dad's radio show, at least for while, while he was a kid in Minnesota. So my dad ended up coming back to LA and doing Jewish music, doing a program, a Jewish music hour every Sunday in LA, and was also running a station in LA when he was out of college. And then he was doing that for a while and he really wanted to expand that. So what he did is he opened in 73. So literally 50 years ago, he started a Jewish bi-weekly Jewish newspaper. It was called Israel Today. And it wasn't just about Israel, but it was, it's like a kind of a cool name for it because it wasn't just about Israel, but he called it Israel Today, meaning like the greater people of Israel. And, and it came out every other week. And so he did that. He was doing that for about four or five years. The newspaper got very successful in LA and then in 1977, 78, he approached one of the television, local television UHF channels the, the before they had cable, or they're just starting with cable, but no one had cable. But he went to one of the UHF's channels and said, hey, can I have an hour? I have an hour in radio. Would you let me have an hour in TV? And so he did. He, he bought it. He paid for it. And then he got to program it and put on his commercials. So he ended up doing that, starting that on uh, Channel 22 here in LA. And that eventually moved to another channel, Channel 18. And, and for a good 20 years, he was doing that on UHF. He also eventually syndicated it and started picking up other cities where he would essentially do the same thing. He would purchase a block on Sundays, usually Sunday afternoons, and broadcast the, the program. And so he was doing that for a few years. He eventually turned his biweekly paper, he turned it in the 1980s, he turned it into a daily paper. And the whole concept of creating a daily called Israel Today was he wanted to have something like USA Today for the Jewish community. And so he, he raised money for it. He created Israel Today, a daily Jewish newspaper and print. And this was before the internet. And so it would have done much better if it was the internet. And he, he spent five or six years trying to create that and make that vision happen. And unfortunately, it didn't work. It didn't take. So the newspaper eventually went back to being actually a, a monthly magazine. But the TV continued on and the radio continued on. And then about, about 15 years later, he was able to convince DirecTV to actually create a Jewish channel, to actually create a 24-hour Jewish channel, which would be broadcast on satellite and, and on cable systems. And he signed his first few cable systems. And the channel went, it went from being a one-hour-a-day channel on a program, on, a, on an individual channel, to a 24-7 channel itself and network itself. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge thing. That was in 2006. And that when that finally came to fruition, that was something that like people still, even to this day, people say, how did he do that? How did he convince DirecTV to carry it? And I just honestly think he never thought that it couldn't happen. He said, look, you have so many Christian channels. Why can't you have one Jewish channel? What I don't think he really thought of was like, first of all, how do you program it? Because no one's ever created this much content for a 24-7 channel. But on top of it, it's because the only people who start networks are companies with millions of dollars and with relationships with other entities where they can do this. And so whether it's a Viacom or whether it's whatever, whatever the company is, they have four channels or five channels on a cable system. They don't have one. So it was very, it was beyond bold. It was not just chutzpah, it was insanity to some extent, because no one no, everyone he would have asked in the media world, and I don't think he even cared, anyone would have told him it's impossible to do this. You can't create a Jewish channel. And he did it anyways. And so when he created it, he was like severely undercapitalized. He was severely, un he didn't have enough content, but he just did it. And he says, once we do it, once we get it, it will make it work. Mm -hmm. And so it's been over 15 years now, but it's, and it's still, it like what it looks like now is still, it's still in its early stages. It's still, it's partly because again, there's still so little content, but also because as I mentioned before, the Jewish community still has this issue with, and, and we all fall into it, that it's one thing to be on a Jewish channel, but I don't want to be on a Jewish channel. I want to be on CBS. I want to be on ESPN. If I'm recognized by the Jewish community on the Jewish channel, 
big deal. I want to be recognized in the greater community. And then if the local community, if my own home community wants to recognize me, great. But I want to be recognized by everybody first. And so there's always this, and I don't think it's just Jews. I think any ethnic community, any niche community is going to have that issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this. I think it's a really interesting perspective. So now, when you say a Jewish network, okay, that's a big umbrella. But my question and the logical question probably from anyone that's coming from any particular denomination is where does it stand? Is it pluralistic? Is it leaning a certain way? Is it trying to influence people a certain way? Or is it simply celebrating Jewish life and culture in an open framework? Yeah, I like to tell people that JLTV is much more like a Jewish BET. It's much more of a cultural network. It's much more of a celebration of Jewish life. JLTV really functions, I think, as the Jewish as a Jewish BET in a very broad sense. It really tries. And one of the things that my father was committed to was never having a political agenda, never having a religious agenda, being able to be open to the entire Jewish community, to the entire Jewish experience. There was never any intention of saying that this is this is okay and this is not okay. I would say the one red line we have in the Jewish community that we're very sensitive to is that we don't want any messianic. There's not a, once it crosses the realm into Christianity, that's no longer a part of the Jewish experience now. And I think that's what happens with a Jewish fair or a Jewish cultural experience, where they're going to say, we're going to have all the Jewish groups here represented, but we're not having them represented. That being said, look, we can't control who watches the network. And we know that there's people of all backgrounds. And the reality is that about 70% of our audience, 70%, maybe as high as 80% of our audience is not Jewish, which means that the vast majority of people that are tuning in on any given day to JLTV are not Jewish. Whatever their background is, we don't, we have no idea. Once you put it up on, on a channel, up on cable, what's up on satellite, it's going everywhere. And we don't really, we will never fully know, right? Because we don't have Nielsen's that break down that kind of information. But what we can say is that when we know what the reactions are from people, where we're getting feedback, where, where we're hearing from our viewers, we know that a lot of them are not. And we can see where people are watching us. And when they're watching us in Montana and West Virginia and Alabama, we know that a lot of those viewers cannot possibly be Jewish because every single person who's Jewish, affiliated Jewish or identifies Jewish in Alabama would have to be watching for our numbers to be what they are in Alabama. So we know that it's obvious. What's interesting is when people say, what are people who are not Jewish watching? And I prefer to use the word Gentile. When people who are Gentile who are watching in our audience, what are they watching? And the interesting thing, it's not what you think. It's not just programming about Israel. It's not just programming about the Bible. It's actually programming that includes really Jewish programming. And I say really Jewish programming, that includes things like the Shabbat celebrations that we have, what we call TGIF, which is really our chance to celebrate Shabbat. And I think it's something that, again, I think it's one of the most exciting things that we're doing is exposing people to the rich variety of music that exists uh, for Jewish liturgy, which you know better than anyone else. And I would say that as one of the most gifted uh, and talented creators of truly Jewish music, uh, and again, by that, drawing on Jewish sources, drawing on Jewish ideas and Jewish values, that you're really one of the the leaders of that in, in our country now, that this is a showcase for people. And the audiences are wide and they're very different than what you'd think. And that's not just, it's, I'm going to say, it's not just evangelical. It's not just in one area. It includes people must be Muslim that are watching it in Turkey. There are people that are watching it in, in I forget Turkey. There's countries that already have even a larger Muslim population uh, percentage wise that are watching it. Those numbers don't lie. The, the people who are watching it cannot all be watching it for the sake of studying their enemies or trying to learn what we're saying about them. First of all, we're not because it's very not political and it's very, I think, you know, more not doing things that are controversial or confrontational, which was a big thing for my dad. And it's something that I've probably followed in more than I even feel comfortable. I'm a little bit more confrontational than he was, but it's very non-confrontational. And so we're not, there's nothing there where people would be going, oh, look, they're watching it because they're going to get angry or they want to know what we're saying about them. There's none of that. And so people are watching it. They're enjoying it. They must be saying from their vantage point, this is meaningful to me, which I mean, that is like every day when I see that, it blows my mind and it makes me feel like 
of all the everybody talks about all the negative stuff that's going on, all the anti-Semitism. There's something going on here, which is most Jews don't realize how many people are out there that are consuming Jewish content, and you must know this, that are consuming Jewish content who are who are not born Jewish. Absolutely. Could you guesstimate your total viewership based on metrics over the last couple of years? So yeah, it's something we're always trying to put our fingers on. And our viewership during the high times, the high blocks, the the prime time night times, we're getting up to 350, 250 to 350 throughout the week. But the highest times is probably 350 to, to 400,000 that are watching the programs. Some of the programs that I would like to be the most watched, those are not. I wish there were 400,000 people watching Shabbat. It's an interesting thing too, is we really didn't, we weren't broadcasting a Shabbat experience until COVID. And we really only did it because once people were streaming and, and broadcasting from every synagogue, virtually, not every synagogue, but most uh, synagogues that at least allowed electricity or broadcasting, we were like, everyone's doing it. And so we're going to do it. I was a little hesitant to do it, but by broadcasting anything during Shabbos, we were, you can make the argument that we were already, as long as we didn't have a dead screen, you, we, you, some people could say that we're violating that. So then the question is, are we going to give people content that's meaningful. And when people couldn't go to synagogue, we were like, this is a no brainer. Let's put on as much spiritual content as we can to uplift people during Shabbos. And so that kind of changed, it changed my feeling about it. Cause I really didn't, I didn't want people to be offended by it. I really didn't want people to feel that way. And as a congregational rabbi, I didn't want people to feel like we don't want people to be in a shul because there's no question. We wanted people as soon as they could to be able to be in, in a, in environment with people where they can give them a hug, where they can look at people, they can see them, they can see when they're happy, when they're crying. There's no, there's no equivalent to that in any experience digitally or or any kind of broadcast. So I don't want I, I don't want to take people away from human contact. At the same time, look, this is a reality. This is what we have now, and so we're going to provide it. And again, to try to do our best by the viewers, by the people who who will see that and who have no access. We have people who are watching who who are watching. There's not a synagogue within 50, 100, sometimes 100 miles from where these people are. And I'm not joking. There could be in places in Alaska and we have viewers in Alaska or, or and in and I don't mean like Juno. We get calls from people and emails from people where we know that the nearest synagogue to their home is 100 miles. So this is not there's not a question that this is a service to those people. Again, I could put a disclaimer beyond at the bottom of every Shabbat celebration that said, hey, go to shul and be with people. I, I don't mind doing that, but I don't also don't want to offend people or, or make people who can't feel bad. So at the same time, everybody knows, I hope they know, and I'm saying it right now, this should not take the place of being with people, the 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 Shabbat celebration that we have. Love it. So tell me, pretty clear on the purpose of JLTV now, what do you see as the future of JLTV? Where is it going? It's a great question because I think part of it has to do with uh, the nature of content and how people are creating content now. Like part of me says that I want our network to be the nexus point where content, all Jewish content is shared. I'd love for JLTV, like my vision, my biggest vision is that JLTV will be a place where every Jewish podcast, including this one will be, where someone could watch Every Jewish movie that ever existed will be where people could watch and consume every Jewish news source from every point of view, every part of the political spectrum. If it's Jewish news, if it's news about Israel, that they could come to our 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 portal and be connected to it for Jewish learning and for Jewish for meaningful Jewish classes and Jewish text study. All that would be accessible through JLTV. That's what my biggest dreams is for us to be able to do that. And again, for us to broadcast and to, for us to be able to be to be accessed in every home. So we're working on that. We're still adding, believe it or not, we're still adding cable systems and we're still adding streaming platforms. Now we have to constantly, continuously update the streaming platforms that we're on because there's so many of them. For example, we're on a streaming platform called Zumo, which is X-U-M-O. A lot of TVs come with Zumo pre-installed. Now there's all the TVs that have their own channels, like Samsung has their own channels. We want to be on every one of those TVs. We want to be on every system so that people have access to it. It's having content and it's also having 
the distribution and the carriage in the, in all those places. So I'm hoping that'll happen. But again, since so much is still in flux, so much is still happening just with the way content is being distributed, that that's also that we have no control over that. That's a lot of that's going to be what kind of content is being created in not just the Jewish community, general community and how that interacts with each other, whether people are going to want to watch 30 second TikTok clips versus a two hour movie. I like it. Who knows? But I want to be able to at least have the ability to do all of those things and, and for people to know that they can come here and have access to it. Even if we're not the creator of it, that we can be a, a nexus point, essentially the search engine or the library point where people can have access to it. So that's what I'm hoping, because I know that's what's going to be important for us. And look, one of the things that we're doing right now, and one of the things that I have a little bit more involvement with, which is the creation of that content. So because we have the Jewish Life Foundation, because we have a nonprofit that uh, I'm president of, which is raising money for that content, we're able to raise money and create content ourselves. And so that's another piece of what we're doing for the future, which is very exciting, which is creating that content. And hopefully, again, thinking of those things that you know, with the responsibility, understanding that's a sacred responsibility, that understanding that when we create or when we're choosing what kind of content we're creating, to some extent, we're saying what's acceptable or what's not acceptable, or to some extent, what's aesthetically pleasing and what's not aesthetically pleasing. It's a big responsibility. And I and I take it seriously. Like, I, I want to push myself to say, you know, am I being open to all these expressions? Am I being open to the entire experience of of the Jewish community, of where Jews are, where Jewish people are coming from. And that's really what it's going to be. If people who are consuming it are are not members of the Jewish community, that's fine. But our network is first and foremost to serve the Jewish community and to create and help facilitate the the, the dissemination of Jewish content. So that's what drives us. And, And again, I think we have this mission, we have this vision of doing this, but how it's going to be implemented, I think, is to some extent is going to be dictated by what kind of content people are going to want to see, what kind of content people are actually, you know, going to become accustomed to. Because if we create content and it's not fitting the right form, what good is it? It's, it means no one's going to watch it. No one's going to pay attention to it. And so that's why being a place for podcasts, which are obviously have hit a, another level of, of interest, that's something that's very important for us. And it's something that I'm hoping that we can continue to be leaders of and be involved with. It's exciting. And and again, it's exciting partly because who knows? I don't even want to guess what, but we definitely want to be a part of it. But what does that look like? What is this content? What does it look like in the future? Yeah. So not only the content of the content, but the form, is it short form, medium form, long form? That's what you're addressing in terms of where one can find JLTV. It's jltv.tv. There's also a YouTube channel as well. And of course, if you have Direct TV, I think you ch- check with your local provider about Direct TV. It's very easy. 325 everywhere in the world. It's on 325. The problem is cable. It's you got to look at your cable systems. The great news is this year, this year, Charter Spectrum is rolling us out on every single platform. Every charter, every home that has Charter Spectrum will have JLTV by the end of the year. Up until now, we were in their kind of their big Jewish communities, but now we're excited to say we're going to be on every Charter Spectrum home in the country. We're on Cox Communications, which is huge in Nevada and Northern Virginia, New England, Arizona. Don't want to forget, don't want to forget Phoenix, all of our friends in Phoenix and Scottsdale. But again, Go on jltv.tv. There's a, a column there for a, a heading for channels. You can find your channel. If you're not, if we're not on your channel, call the cable company because those kind of calls make a difference. I love it. Are you open to taking requests for certain types of content as well? Like people want to see XYZ or certain films, et cetera? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've responded. If we're able to, we've responded with that. We definitely want to hear from the viewers. We want to hear what people want to see. Uh, and again, Pretty much anything, I told you what the red line is, pretty much everything within the Jewish community is probably can make it on there. And we have a a lot of leeway and a lot of, we have a lot of freedom, I think. And one of the shows that people love that we've been airing for the last couple of years is Fauda, which you can only watch on Netflix, Prisoners of War, which at one time you can only, it's not even there anymore, but I think it was on Hulu for a brief period of time. The only places you can watch these shows on broadcast TV is on JLTV. You can't watch Fauda on 
any other cable able any other cable channel the only place you can watch it is on ours on servant of the people that is the show that Zelensky was the star of in ukraine the only place to watch servant of the people on broadcast tv is jltv so we've got some cool we got some cool shows we've got some really good stuff and you're going to see shabbat services and we don't i like to call them shabbat celebrations tgif we really have a chance to celebrate shabbat with some great voices and i'm not going to ruin it by saying one of those great voices is is coming up is a guy named Saul K. I appreciate it. And I'm happy to contribute. I've heard all the other artists. They're pretty much all friends of mine that I've seen so far. And, and it's a great collection of artists and musicians as well. So as we start to wrap up here, the one question I always ask every guest on the Holy Sparks podcast is, what do you feel the Jewish world needs now most and why? as asking me right now, and part of it's probably informed by the fact that we're in these days before, before the high holidays, before the Yamim Noreen, before these big days coming up, looming on our, in our minds. I definitely hope that, that we all feel a sense of hope. We have a sense of tikva. Somebody asked me once, a really well-known African-American minister asked me, a guy named Chip Murray, who is the minister of First AME Church here in, in LA. And he, he said to me, similar question, like, what's the most important Jewish word? And I said, hope. He says, wow. He says, you're the first rabbi. I've asked a lot of rabbis. And that's the first, that's the first time I ever heard that. I said, to me, that embodies to me what Judaism is about, which is looking to a better future, looking to better days. And every year, like, I hope that the next year will be a little bit better, that we'll be able to achieve a little bit more peace, a little bit more harmony. And, and again, like acceptance and understanding and love with our neighbors and with our friends and with, and even with our people that we think are our enemies, hopefully won't be one day. But I, I like, I hope, you know, that we have that. And I always think about that. But I also, I hope for my friends and my family, and mostly for me, like at the end of the day, I wake up and I say, it all starts with me and it starts with what I can do and what I can do for myself to make myself a better person. So I hope I can, I wake up and I go, I hope I can do better today with the amazing gifts that God gave me. And so I think if everybody has that sense of hope, like it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be the way it was yesterday and my kids can have a better world, but it starts today by saying it like my kids are here now. And I know you're a father now and you, you say, I hope my kids will have it better. I think that's what the Jewish people gave to the world. That's like our gift to humanity is hope. And so I hope we have hope. That's what I, that's what my wish is. Shamati, which means I hear you. So, well, thank you so much, Rabbi Mark, for your time. I know you're a very busy man with a lot going on. And as always, I want to end with a blessing that Hashem should bless you with an ever expanding audience for JLTV both in and out of the Jewish world that can appreciate the content, the culture, connect, reconnect, and that though that will ripple out into the world and create a larger Jewish community and build bridges between the Jewish community and non-Jewish community, because we certainly need more of that. And I appreciate your humble spirit and you dropped a lot of incredible wisdom. And I hope that you're able to continue to enjoy teaching, which I can tell you love doing and spreading love and community and connection. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for the holy work you're doing too. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul K. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.